All right, guys, so I got the music stand up to hold my cup here because uh, I'm kind of feeling like a boy who's going through puberty right now. I'm losing my voice, and uh, so I remember getting called on when I was in class in like seventh grade and being terrified to read because my voice would crack. And uh, so you guys can laugh at me if that happens. It'll make me feel right at home. But uh, we are uh, continuing this study in the Gospel of John. And I was reminded of this core value that we have as a church at Redemption. And that is that we believe that the Bible is true. And there's this common argument against the trustworthiness or the truth of the Bible that you've heard before. And that is that the Bible is full of contradictions. And there's a couple reasons that we don't think that that's true. And one is that we believe that the Bible is unique. It's unique in a number of different ways, but one of the ways that it's unique is in the way that it was put together. So let me read something about the Bible that I think is helpful if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, or a good reminder even if you are familiar with the Bible, of what the Bible is. So this scholar says this, it, the Bible, contains 66 separate books, 39 Old Testament and 27 New Testament, written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and a bit in Aramaic, over a period of more than a thousand years, by more than 40 authors of varying ages and backgrounds who wrote on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. Authors of the Bible include kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, and scholars. The books of the Bible cover history, sermons, letters, songs, and love letters. There are geographical surveys, architectural specifications, travel diaries, population statistics, family trees, inventories, and numerous legal documents. It covers hundreds of controversial subjects with amazing unity. It's also the best-selling book of all time and is now available in nearly 3,000 languages. So one of the reasons I think that people think the Bible is full of contradictions is frankly, it's complex. And so whenever something's complex, it's easy to misunderstand it. So let me give you one reason that I've found the Bible as I've read it over the years to be entirely trustworthy, and that is its internal consistency. So I remember this idea landing on my soul at a young age. My dad had a friend at work whose name was Evan Janovitz, and Evan Janovitz was Jewish, and he also was a genius. He got a perfect ACT score. And my dad was in a consistent conversation with Evan about the Bible because Evan's perspective was the Old Testament is true and the New Testament is not true. And my dad encouraged him to study for himself the New Testament. And he specifically pointed him to the book of, books of Romans and Hebrews. And he gave Evan his big NIV study Bible. I can still picture it in my mind's eye. It's got tan and dark brown on the front cover. And he gave it to Evan, and Evan came back less than two months later. 
And he came into my dad's office, and my dad recounts the story of him taking this giant Bible and throwing it onto his desk. And he goes, I read it. And he goes, you read Hebrews and Romans? He goes, no, I read the whole thing. And he goes, and it's all true. And gave his life to Christ. And I hope that as we look at this passage of the Bible where John is making the argument that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, that you will embrace Jesus because you see the truth about him in this word and you trust him. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. The first thing we see in the text is that he is Lord. Look with me again at verses 19 through 28. It says, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptized. So John, Jesus' disciple, is writing about another John, John the Baptist, and he is recounting this story about John. Now John lived out in the wilderness. He was known to eat grasshoppers and wear camel skin coats. He's kind of a wild guy. And he told people to repent and believe the good news. And he himself is spreading in fame. And so there were these religious elite leaders called the Pharisees who went out to investigate what he was doing. And their common question to him was, who are you? And his response was to quote a scripture that they would have known from Isaiah 40. Specifically verses three through five. Let me read that in its original context. It says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so John is saying, contrary to popular belief, I am not the Messiah. I am not the Christ. I am here to prepare the way for the Lord. And they're trying to understand, who is he talking about? Who is the Lord? Because to them, the Lord was so holy and so high and so exalted that he was inaccessible. And that's because they believed passages like Isaiah chapter 6, 
Same book that I just read from. We're going to go back several chapters. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Famous passage in the Old Testament. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So the Pharisees had embraced that the Lord is holy, that he is set apart, that he is high and lifted up. And here's John saying, I'm here to prepare the way of the Lord. And then he makes this incredibly strange statement to their ears. He says, the strap of whose sandals you are unworthy to untie. Now notice about Isaiah chapter 6 that the creatures that are before the Lord are covering up their feet. It said they had six wings. They're covering their faces, they're flying, and they're covering their feet. Why are they covering their feet? Because to, cover, to have feet in the Old Testament was a sign that you were a creature. And before a holy God, you had to cover up your feet. And here's what John is saying. The Lord has feet. The Lord has become a human being. Guys, I wore sandals on purpose today. And I'm teaching this passage. Okay? A few college girls a few weeks ago told me that whenever I wear sandals, it's a vibe. I don't know what that means, <laughs> but I'm going to keep wearing them. Okay? But here's the thing about sandals. Sandals make religious people feel uncomfortable. Right? They're not holy enough. You got to put on your Sunday best. Nobody looks that cool in sandals, right? We've all got like some awkward shaped toenail or we've got like that hairy toe or you've got something going on this way. I still remember seeing my grandpa Don in sandals for the first time. He was a farmer and he had dropped so many things on his toes that his toenails were yellow and like this thick, right? Like sandals are the ultimate evidence that you are a human being and not God. And here is what John is saying. The high lifted up, exalted Lord is walking on the earth with us. He's here. I'm not him. You're not him. That's him. Unreal. He can't get over it. It's unbelievable. Guys, I remember this time of the year when I was a college pastor, I was in Iowa City reaching out to those wretched Hawkeyes. And, uh, you know, trying to win as many as I could to Jesus. It was a tough job. Somebody had to do it. And I was on campus, and I remember sharing the gospel with a student, just in a one-on-one -on -one relationship. I was handing out flyers, and he stopped and wanted to have a conversation. And I started talking to him about the good news of Jesus, which I love to do. And he 
stopped me at one point in the conversation. And he said, I don't believe that what you're saying is true. But I hope it is. Guys, this news is so beautiful. It's so amazing. It's so unexpected. That my hope for you is that even if you don't believe that it's true, that this service would create in you a hope that it is. Here's what a non-Christian philosopher who read through the Gospels named Jean-Jacques Rousseau said about the Gospels. He said, the Gospel has marks of truth so great, so striking, so perfectly imitable, that means unique, that the inventor would be more astonishing than the hero. See what he's saying? He's saying, when I read the Gospels, I, I recognized this. I recognized that there was something so unique about Jesus that if the Gospel writers like John made him up, then we would need to worship them. And I think this is one of those places in the Gospels where we just have to stop and we have to say, who could make this up? God, with hairy feet and sandals. And do you guys know why the Pharisees didn't bow and worship him in that moment? They didn't get the joke. They were so stuffy and so serious and so committed and so religious that they couldn't get past their own presuppositions and see the beauty of the story that God was writing that was far beyond anything that they had thought of. He is the Lord with sandals on. The second thing we see in the text is that he is the lamb. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So here's John. It's the next day. And Jesus is there. And he points at him. And he says, behold the Lamb of God. And immediately, in the Jewish mindset, most of the people around him were Jewish at the time. Certainly the Pharisees were. Their mind would have gone to the sacrificial system. And I think internally, their mind would have said something like, it's not a lamb, it's a man. And the way that you get your sins forgiven is by sacrificing a lamb. So you go get a lamb from your flock, you bring it to the temple, the priests do this elaborate series of sacrifices. And then the next time that your conscience is guilty or there's a certain festival or occasion, you sacrifice again. And we know throughout the Old Testament that one of the general principles to have a relationship with God is that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But their understanding was not that God has a lamb, 
but that I have lambs and I'm supposed to give my lamb to God. And John is reversing their thinking here. And he's saying, listen, here's what that sacrificial system was pointing to. The sacrificial system was not an end in itself. It was pointing to something greater than itself. And here's what it was pointing to him. That person walking there, who I told you yesterday is the Lord, who is wearing sandals, is the Lamb of God. And here is the job of the Lamb of God. To take away the sin of the world. It doesn't matter what race you are or what culture you come from. It doesn't matter what your religious background is. It doesn't matter how many bad things you've done or how many good things you've done. It doesn't matter how strong or how weak your faith is. It doesn't matter how much you've repented or not repented. Here's what matters. To behold him. See, there is nothing that any of us can do to take away our sins. There is nothing that any of us can say. We cannot do enough. It is only Jesus who can take away our sins. And everybody has to go through that same narrow way to be saved, whether a child or a scholar. And John is saying, all you need to do is behold the Lamb. Guys, Charles Spurgeon, famous British preacher in the 1800s, was preparing to preach on this text. And he recounts a moment where he was testing the acoustics of a building. This is before they had microphones and speakers and all these fancy things. This is what he says. In 1857, a day or two before preaching at the Crystal Palace, I went to decide where the platform should be fixed. And in order to test the acoustic properties of the building, cried in a loud voice, behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. In one of the galleries, a workman who knew nothing of what was being done heard the words, and they came like a message from heaven to his soul. He was smitten with conviction on account of sin, put down his tools, went home, and there, after a season of spiritual struggling, found peace and life by beholding the Lamb of God. See, Christianity can get super complex for us. It gets muddled. We don't get it. There's all these rules. You've got texts about the Spirit of God, and you've got texts about the holiness of God. And we should read all the Bible, and we should believe all of it, but sometimes it gets muddled in our minds. And here is what is very clear in this text. If you want to be saved, you behold the Lamb. All you need 
to go home today with peace with, peace with God is to behold the Lord. Here's what's true about a lamb. A lamb is the only animal that will let you kill it, that won't struggle, that won't fight. Here's why Jesus came to the earth, to die in your place for your sin. You see, the Lord put sandals on so that he could become the lamb, so that he could die for your sin. And the question for you this morning is, will you take your eyes off of yourself, whether that's on your good performance, the things that you've done, or on your bad performance, the sins that you've committed, and the things you wish you would have done, and will you put your eyes on Jesus? And here's what you will see if you put your eyes on Jesus. It is enough. It is the work is done. The lamb has paid for the sins of the world. So we see in the text that he is the Lord, that he is the lamb. And finally, we see that he is the son. Starting with verse 32. And John bore witness, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So guys, in the Old Testament books of Judges and Samuel, we see the Spirit of God come down on people, rushes on them and gives them like this prophetic boost or this kingly courage. But what you don't see in the Old Testament is the Spirit of God remain on someone. The Spirit of God comes on someone, but the Spirit of God does not remain on someone. And yet it's prophesied throughout the Old Testament that when the Son of God comes, when the true chosen one, the true judge and the true king and the true son comes, that the spirit of God will not just rush on him, but the spirit of God will remain on him. And John is recounting during Jesus' baptism that the crowd around him saw the spirit come in a form of a dove. And the spirit did not just rush on him, but the Spirit of God remained on him. And God said out loud so that everyone there could hear, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Lamb. And Jesus is God's son. And here's what's true about the ministry of Jesus. He says in John chapter 3 that he did not come to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is a direct fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 3. Behold my servant 
whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Okay, so immediately we think of justice. We think somebody's got a sword in their hand. We think that that person is gonna take care of business and then he is gonna wipe out all the sin and brokenness and evil of the world through top-down power. But this is the evidence that Jesus is the son of God. This is how Jesus brings forth justice in that day and how he brings forth justice today. A faintly burning wick. He will not put out. You see, Jesus absorbed the justice problem on the cross. He took on the penalty for your sin. And so we are all, spiritually speaking, like little, faintly burning candles. You've seen this before. You've had a candle sitting on your desk or sitting on your kitchen island, and that flame is just barely flickering, and you're looking at it and seeing that it's about to go out. And God is saying we are all kind of like that. We're very spiritually weak. And here's what the Son of God is like, contrary to popular belief. He doesn't say, are you kidding me? That's all you got? And just blow out the candle, forget you. You got no spiritual strength, life vitality. Instead, we see Jesus walk up to the candle that's barely burning in each of our lives. And over and over again, he blows so gently that the flame does not go out, but reignites again. Are you a person this morning who even the command to behold the lamb feels like too much for your soul to handle? Like you're just like, I'm so weak spiritually. Maybe you're overwhelmed with starting college. Maybe you're overwhelmed having become a new parent or overwhelmed in some relationship or with some task to do some new job or you lost a job or you've got a health problem or something like that and you are just barely holding on spiritually. And for me to say anything to you, this feels like, man, I, I don't think I can do it. The Bible says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus is not recruiting like a marine drill sergeant. Jesus is looking for people who are barely holding on because he is an expert at reigniting the flame. That's who he is. That's what he does. He fulfills what we can. See, he's the lamb that died for our sins. He's the Lord 
who came to rescue us. He's the Son of God filled with the Spirit who won't put out the flame in our lives. And so my question for you is very simple. Will you have him? Will you trust him? Will you believe him? Will you see that he is the one that your soul needs? And will you watch him change your life? Pray that it would be so. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you that you are so humble that you came to earth to walk among us. So humble that you died for us. So gentle and kind that you will not over and over again, reignite it, or you will light it for the first time. So God, I pray for that person in the room who is barely holding on. Or maybe this is their first time hearing this good news, and there's so many conflicting thoughts bouncing around in their mind, and they don't know what to grab onto. Spirit of God, would you come and allow us to behold the Lamb of God. To see Jesus high and lifted up. To know that our sins are forgiven, not because of what we've done or not because of what we've said or not because of the amount of our faith or the quality of our repentance, but because He is enough. Would those who were standing on shaky ground go out this morning with peace with God because you who have fulfilled what we never could have chosen.